Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 30th, 2019, and my guest is Daron Asimoglu of MIT. This is his fifth appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in November of 2014, talking about inequality, institutions, and Piketty. Today we're talking about a recent monograph he did for a group called Economics for Inclusive Prosperity. His piece is entitled, It's Good Jobs, Stupid. Daron, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. Thanks for having me again. Now, I want to start with a more basic idea. We'll get to good jobs in a minute, but I want to talk about uh, what the idea of shared prosperity means to you, which uh, is a phrase you use a number of places in the essay. Yeah, I think it has two components, really. I don't think that there is a level of inequality that you can say it's broadly agreed that you know you shouldn't go above or anything like that. But if you have... You know, a period of almost four decades in which some groups are left behind while, you know, GDP per capita and other measures of prosperity are forging ahead. That is clearly not shared prosperity. And then the second element that, you know, will take us perhaps to the heart of the discussion, I think you really need some amount of wage growth and employment growth to go with prosperity because that's the only way of sort of creating the basis of shared prosperity. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by wage growth? Don't you, don't by definition you need growth or do you just saying that we could imagine a world where everyone's relatively comfortable in in the U S you know, we've had, uh, uh, growth for the last four decades, but, Average wages have been more or less stagnant, and employment uh, has grown not much more than population growth, uh, or actually slightly less. So, so the ability of uh, of the economy to sort of generate more jobs and especially higher wages is not guaranteed. And the reason why I'm actually emphasizing that is because, uh, you know, one view is that perhaps we can create shared prosperity by redistributing and and that's not what uh, I think is is, is, is is generally long-term sustainable that there are a number of political social and economic reasons why we have to uh, push the market economy to generate shared prosperity not say let the market economy rip and then we can use uh, taxes and transfers in order to achieve whatever level of uh, distribution of consumption and resources we wish. Yeah, that, that latter vision is one that I think gets invoked, particularly when people are worried about extreme increases in, say, the ability of artificial intelligence to automate work. Exactly, and, and that's why this, this, those topics are really central to the conversation we'll have. Yeah, I think if, you know, if we really have a... I don't think that's going to be a reality, but if we really had a world where only a handful of people were able to work creating the machines that made us immensely wealthy, that somehow we would then extract resources from that handful of people to share with the rest of the uh, society. It strikes me as a pretty dystopian uh, future. Absolutely, it is dystopian, uh, and and for more than one reason. Uh, First of all, I think people would be really unhappy, alienated, uh, you know, meaning uh, the missing a meaning of life because I think staying at home and uh, living off government transfers is not going to be satisfactory for the vast majority of the people. Not for everybody. It's for some people it might be fine, but for the majority of the people it won't be. But second, uh, it won't be feasible to maintain that because at some point uh, those who command all of the resources of the economy are going to find ways of getting out of making those transfers. And finally, I think the uh, uh, democratic political equilibrium that undergirds what we have right now wouldn't be maintained, uh, wouldn't be sustainable if we had an economy in which 
a handful of people generate all cap and capture all the value and the rest just uh, live off transfers. Yeah, I, I think we're, we'd be in uncharted territory <laughs> the, the, just on the political side. I think, I think that point alone, the idea that somehow we'll peacefully rearrange things so that we're all doing fine uh, is, seems to me to be a bit of a fantasy. It's a fantasy, whether it's an unrealizable fantasy. Absolutely. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I don't think it is realizable, and and I think it is. It is. I mean, it's extreme, but it is useful to contemplate it because if you uh, look into the details of many of the ideas that come from the progressive wing of U.S. politics and some other countries' politics, they really amount to a world in which. Uh, something like that is going to be uh, a, a, a important pillar of it. So, in some sense, what I'm the the, the, the essay that you mentioned is really trying to uh, articulate an alternative progressive vision. Let's talk for a minute about this issue of meaning and and a satisfying life. Sometimes uh, we call it uh, people call it flourishing, a sense of, mm-hmm. of mattering, mm-hmm. and certainly through human history. Uh, that we know of, work is central to that. Uh, there's a Absolutely. lot of horrifying work that, that people did just to stay alive. But through, I would say, the last 200 years or so, to a large extent, people, a lot of people derived a sense of meaning from either their work itself or the opportunity to take care of their family, to support their family. Is this just a cultural um phenomenon that would change in a world of, of extreme automation? Is it possible that meaning is overrated and that people would enjoy, uh, well, you know, my my dystopian vision is people watching YouTube all day, which I feel like many of us already do to some extent. But um, what, what do you think about this question of, of a meaning I, I, it's, work? It's, it's, of course, it's out of sample, so we have to extrapolate, so it's hard to know. But I, I think uh, most people who do not use jo- their jobs, their main profession as an important part of their identity, find it very hard to sort of uh, sustain a meaningful, motivated existence. And in some sense, there's a good reason for that. You know, uh, evolutionarily, we are programmed to work. Otherwise, it would have been just much harder for people to to be motivated to go out there, hunt and gather, or go and do engage in productive activities. And it's not a coincidence that everybody, starting from childhood, really takes pride in doing something well and identifying with something. You know, if you watch children, you see that's completely ingrained in them. Now, again, you can say, well, perhaps instead of you know a job, that could be a video game, but but I think there is a sense in which that's not going to work as well. And, uh, and, and, and in history, uh, you know, sociological accounts find how people identify with very, very unpleasant and bad jobs because it gives them a community, it gives them solidarity, and it gives them a meaning of life. There is a work by, you know, some sociologist uh, Ransiman, for example, you know, describing you know, coal miners, which sort of uh, gives you a very good sense of this. Yeah, I worry that my experience, which my work is deeply meaningful to me, I have other things that are meaningful too, but uh, so it's not just my work, but my work is deeply meaningful to me. And and I I worry that I suspect you like your job too. I wonder if we are... You know, wildly unrepresentative, or yeah, we might be. I mean, that's the problem. You know, we are. It's very difficult to uh, to sort of leave your own identity when commenting on these things. I often warn my students uh, when they work on labor issues: don't think that the world uh, world over the labor market looks like the U.S. academic labor market. <laughs> uh, and you know, if you look at uh, if you look at the sort of the totality of human history, a lot of work was entangled with coercion that says, obviously, not everything that people did 
they liked and enjoyed, then that's why their employers and the elites chose to coerce them sometimes viciously in order to get them to do the job. But but finding meaning in jobs and and and, and what you do is is extremely common in history. And I don't think I don't think um Interesting question. I'm sure sociologists have looked at it. I don't know many economists, if any, that have looked at retired people. And, you, you know, you, you hear people um, bemoaning. I mean, I can't imagine retiring, literally. Yes. I, maybe, exactly, yeah. Maybe I'd, I'd do more enough. And maybe I'd play golf more than once a decade if, if I were <laughs> retired. Maybe I'd... Uh, Take a lot of photographs. I love photography, but lots of lots of, lots of movies I want to watch. But yeah, you know. <laughs> I just don't see that work. And, and you hear that from people. You know, I you know the first three yeah. months so, were fun. No, I, think, and, I think the evidence that I have seen is that you know there's a, a, a some fraction of people. You know, I don't know exactly what, but perhaps fifteen, ten to fifteen percent, who really enjoy retirement. They travel. They find some completely new hobbies and new ways of doing things. But uh, uh, overwhelming majority, they find uh, they find it depressing and 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 go through various crises because of retirement. So I'm gonna I want to challenge one of the presumptions that underlies part of your empirical story, and it's a very common presumption. I'm I'm out of the mainstream, but this view that you know wages have been stagnant for 40 years, say, and I was alive in 1979. I was 25 years old. I remember it pretty well. It was not a particularly prosperous time for the average person compared to today. And this raises the possibility uh, that the data that we have to try to measure prosperity are not very accurate, that we don't count compensation, we often just count money wages, we don't measure inflation correctly. Do you really believe that the average person has been left behind for 40 years? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I do. But let me let me take take it on, and 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 I I don't think the skepticism that you have expressed is as un- as uncommon as you make it out to be. I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, there are a couple of facts that challenge people. One of them, and that's why many people end up where you are at some level, is that productivity growth has been very disappointing. And then if you put this to, you know, the titans of industry, especially the tech industry or or, or, or people involved in the tech industry or tech enthusiasts, then they are cornered into saying, well, we must be mismeasuring it. So the quality of the products we have is much better, which amounts to saying CPI is uh, exaggerated and therefore, you know, uh, real wage growth is much more like nominal wage growth or, in fact, even perhaps greater than nominal wage growth. Now, uh, that is a possibility. But, you know, careful studies, especially by the BLS, have not found that the mismeasurement of quality is greater over the last few decades than their estimates of mismeasurement of quality. Because, you know, don't forget, there were many, many new products and quite transformative new products in the post-war era that people did not have access to that really spread in the population. And there's a lot of sort of quality mismeasurement then also. The other thing to bear in mind is that, you know, if there is quality mismeasurement, it would have some implications. For example, it would show that in places where you expect more mismeasured uh, quality, you should have more nominal spending growth, for example, uh, because they are, especially if the elasticity of demand is greater than one. And and generally, we don't find those things. For instance, one paper that I wrote with uh, David Otter, David Dorn, Gordon Hansen, and Brandon Pierce is looked at it at the in the manufacturing industry, and uh, and in places where you have more computers, so you might think those are the sort of uh, technologies that are contributing to more mismeasurement because they're increasing quality of products or introducing new types of products. Actually, both nominal and real spending track each other very very strongly, so there's no dis- decoupling that would indicate some sort of price mismeasurement. Now, none of this is dispositive. None of that proves that CPI is not mismeasured. But I think there isn't uh, uh, great evidence that it is. 
But for that reason, it is useful to look at things that are not affected by CPI mismeasurement. And, uh, and one that is not affected by CPI mismeasurement is if we look at the share of uh, uh, national income or GDP that goes to wage earners versus uh, uh, capital owners. And, and there, uh, this is completely immune to uh, sort of overall CPI mismeasurement. And the, and the, and the picture is, 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 is very striking. So if you look at the uh, uh, the, uh, the the sort of the share of national income going to uh, labor, it starts dropping very sharply, especially in some sectors such as you know manufacturing, mining, uh, and uh, and 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 it doesn't recover at all, and. And it, it sort of creates a, a very striking pattern of some groups being left behind whatever is going on with GDP or, or productivity. And then let me add one other thing. One additional argument that is suggested in regards to some of these facts is about fringe benefits, healthcare, yep. and other benefits that are not uh, included in awesome. some of the yeah. standard weight measures. But there is a very good study of that. It's not updated, but it, it, it sort of covers the early 2000s by Brooks Pierce. And we have a lot of the patterns that happened uh, in terms of inequality increasing, median wages being stagnant already in the 1990s and early 2000s. And what he finds that uh, using the uh, uh, confidential census uh, <coughs> data uh, and sorry, Bureau of Labor Statistics data <coughs> – uh, what he finds that if you add those fringe benefits, inequality is even higher. So a lot of those go disproportionately to high earners. So the uh, the, the the sort of fifty percent, sixty percent of the population being left behind, that's not going to change much by adding to fringe benefits. Well, I don't agree with that, but that's probably a longer story. The reason I don't agree with it is just been mentioned in passing is that I don't care about inequality. Um, I do, but for this conversation, I care about how the bottom half, say, is doing. And it just to suggest that, and, and it may be that that including fringe benefits boosts the upper more than it boosts the bottom. Mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe it doesn't boost. Well, I know it boosts all groups. The question is how much and whether yes. it how it boosts, say, measure progress relative to the past would be interesting. But I think you know the more I don't. I mean, I don't disagree with that. By the way, let me say that I I don't think that it's healthy to just focus on inequality. But I think I emphasize inequality because it gives us a very good sense of shared prosperity. So, in fact, if you know the U.S. economy, say generated 2% a year improvements in the welfare of the bottom 10% and the top 10% increased at 5%, I wouldn't find that as troublesome. The problem is, again, uh, all of these measures really show uh, that the bottom 10% and even bottom 40 30% and even the median is not doing anything like that. Yes, I just I – mean, I, I, think, I think there are numbers that suggest that the bottom has done well. In, in, in the median, especially if you look at following people over time and you look at the um, panel data rather than cross-sectional data. Cross-sectional data, of course, is often confused by the increases, say, in immigration, changes in the age structure of the workforce. People play all kinds of games. And, and I'm not suggesting that all the people play games. Some do. Many yeah. don't. But I, I, let, me, let me ask it a different way. And, I, you know, of course, there are explanations for the labor share point that that have um, look at how government has changed how it treats, say, self-employment, which, of course, self-employed workers are sometimes called labor or sometimes called capital if you're running your own business. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes that challenging. But the bigger point I have, and I'm going to tell this in a different way, I, I was talking about this story when we're discussing this narrative with a um, prominent journalist who I will not name. And um, 
I said, I, you know, I don't think these numbers are representative of what's actually happening. And he said, I think they are. And he said, I think most people would agree with me. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> and I said, the problem I have on top of all this, even if you accept the measurement issues, is what's the underlying cause? And he actually said to me, this is 10 years ago, he said, well, we haven't figured that out yet. Meaning, when we know there has to be one because the numbers don't lie, um, you know, my view is I think the numbers are challenging and complicated. But let's say we accept your view. Let's say that starting, and most would say this, sometime in the 1970s, that prosperity mm-hmm. was, was no longer being shared. You'd want to see a massive structural change in the U.S. economy that, that to me, that would explain that. Mm-hmm. And when I when you press people, and it's funny, if you, when I pressed people on this 15 years ago, 10 years ago, they were more prone to say things like, well, we haven't found that out yet. Now they claim to know, and they say things like uh, market power on the part of firms. Um, you know, you, <laughs> so, and you, you allude to a number of these these arguments yeah. in passing. So try to make the case for me to me. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say I would and, say, and, and, uh, Duran, I want to I want to make it clear. What, one of the reasons it's important, and not just a, a fun thing to argue about. One of the reasons it's important is to understand why good jobs aren't being created. And of course, you talk about absolutely. that in the essay. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, look, I think, unfortunately, for social scientists. This particular thorny issue is multi-causal. I like unicausal stories uh, because it's clear and it mm-hmm. focuses the mind. But in this case, well I think said. there are there are three sets of powerful explanations, and I have uh, worked myself, and I trust the work of others on two of them. But that's not reason for me to be able to. Dismiss the third. So the first one is globalization. So I think trade with low-wage countries has helped firms, but at the same time destroyed or prevented the creation of jobs that would have been created during a different era. Second, which is very related, is automation which is that we have been changing the production technology in a particular way that emphasizes the substitution of machines for labor, which again improves productivity, but does not help create jobs. In fact, that's replacement is uh, at, at its root a way of reducing the labor share, the reducing payments to, to labor, both as an incentive as an, as an outcome. It is very much so. And I'm, I'm more than happy to get into the details of uh, both the theoretical uh, conceptual ideas here and, uh, and, and, and the empirical evidence. And I think both of those are important because, in my opinion, economists generally have underestimated the extent to which globalization and automation really changed the structure and the nature of labor demand. So it's important yeah, to have the conceptual discussion. And then the third uh, set of reasons are institutional. And here I include... Uh, market power, both in the labor market and the product market. And I also include the changing priorities and norms in the corporate world that have made it much easier, sometimes under the guise of shareholders' value, sometimes under the guise of uh, other sort of ideas uh, to take away from workers and banks benefit a small group of shareholders and managers. And unfortunately, I cannot give you as clear evidence on some of these. And I share your view that some of the evidence uh, bandied around on some of these things is not completely convincing. But there are bits and pieces of evidence that uh, that, that is indicative, even if it's not comprehensive. Let's talk about um, globalization just for a minute and automation. And they are, to me, the same thing. They're just ways of producing things more cheaply, sometimes through technology and sometimes through finding a way to produce it overseas rather than producing Absolutely. it domestically. And I- Absolutely. And in fact, that's actually a very important observation because they both amount to replacing 
tasks that were previously performed by labor, by either foreign labor or machines. Correct. That's why they have very similar implications. And they've been going on, those two changes, the mix of, of trade versus automation has shifted in the, in the last 50 years. Well, they've both gotten so much larger as part of it also, but certainly this has been going on in America and the world for a long time. And it didn't lead to the kind of issues that you and I are both worried about. Um, and I, I Great would, question. Right. That's, that's, that's where my research in this area started. So talk about that. Uh, because, you know, you're 100% right. It's, they've been going on for thousands of years, but most prominently, you know, the Industrial Revolution was nothing but a concerted effort in automating, mechanizing production in several industries more or less at the same time. You know, spinning and weaving innovations at the early stages of the British Industrial Revolution were, are just quintessential examples of automation. So then the question that you ask is obviously a very important one. How come things worked out so well in the past? And I have two answers for that. First of all, they haven't worked out so well at every turn. Exactly. But more importantly, the way that they have turned out well has not been an effortless automatic implication of automation. It's been because other adjustments, technological and social, have been made at the same time. And let me elaborate this point, starting from the British Industrial Revolution, and then bring it up all the way to the to the early, uh, to, to, the, to the recent American economic history. So, one of the important uh, surprising facts that economic historians of the British Industrial Revolution have struggled with uh, is what they used to call the living standards paradox, or what uh, more recently uh, Bob Allen, economic historian from at Oxford, called uh, Engels pose after Frederick Engel, which is that for about 80 years, data are scanned, so you know this is a rough estimate, but for a long period of time, exceeding half a century, there were all these amazing innovations, flood of machines that made people dub this period the Industrial Revolution, but at the same time, wages were stagnant. So wages start increasing in the British economy only in the towards the middle of the 19th century. And when do they why do they start increasing? Well, it's overdetermined, but we know several things happen around that time. First of all, technology starts changing and not just putting the emphasis on automation, but a, a variety of other things that are starting to create uh, new tasks, new occupations, new activities in emerging new industries. And this is being undergirded by a complete institutional change. You know, Britain starts becoming democratic with the first Reform Act of 1832. Uh, then, uh, you know, the vestiges of some sort of a social safety net administered by the state starts uh cropping up, uh, investment in education increases, and quite crucially, trade unions start organizing and protecting workers against excessive power of firms, especially because early stages of the Industrial Revolution, you know, was replacing the uh, uh, labor of high-paid, relatively high-paid by the time, by, by the standards of the time, uh, artisans by machines and uh, uh, labor of women and children. So all of these things uh, sort of start changing at the social, political, and economic level. And it is this combination that finally brings wages back to uh, a state of growth. And if you look at the U.S. history over the last, uh, you know, uh, since, say, since World War II, something I have... Uh, done, for instance, with uh, in my work with Pascual Restrepo, what you find is that there is rapid automation, but this automation is being coupled with a lot of other technologies that are at the same time creating new tasks, new jobs, and it's like a race between these two things. On the one hand, you have automation reducing the labor share and pulling down labor demand below the 
growth of productivity. And at the same time, you have these new sectors, new occupations, new tasks cropping up, and that those are pulling it, pushing it up. And and it's sort of a remarkable picture that these two forces are going, and some of them are faster in some industries, and some of the other ones are faster in other industries. And the, and then you aggregate it up, they balance each other out. But there is nothing inherent in this balancing out. It is a, f- a function of institutional choices, and it's a function of technological choices that we make. And then that balance completely disappears from 1980 onwards, or sometimes in the 1970s onwards, where automation starts growing much faster, and the other, uh, what we call reinstating technologies, slow down sharply. So what, what we're talking about here is often goes under the name creative destruction, where innovations or trade uh, destroy often certainly factories, if not industries. And new industries and new factories come along. Um, but of course, they don't come along at a some kind of even pace. And they don't come along at the same rate for all workers. I, I'm very skeptical of the role of, of trade unions, say, in that British story, although I'd be interested in, and I just maybe I don't know enough about it. But I think in America, <clears throat> the irony is, is that when you look at the post-war period, post-war period shows pretty much a steady secular decline in unionization. And over the right. first half of that post-war period, prosperity is widely shared. Jobs are strong. Wage growth is strong across the board, across different levels of skill, even though unionization is declining. So that's that, that trend is – it's hard to invoke that as a cause. It, it could be related. There could be a tipping point. Or below a certain level, it becomes yeah, important. Yeah, I, I think the point isn't that you necessarily need unionization to grow, but and also I think unions are very complex organizations. I mean, how could they not be? And they are sometimes captured. You know, I would not want to touch a trade union controlled by Hafa with a barge pole. But if you look at the early uh, history of industrialization, unions play a critical role. They are the biggest organized bloc fighting for democracy, the Chartist movement, uh, which was really very important for British democracy because the first Reform Act of 1832 just extended the franchise uh, to the middle classes. And the Chartist movement was the one that pushed for, uh, for the broader extension. You know, they are very much coming from the heart of the organized labor. And they also play a very important role in protecting uh, workers against excessive employers' powers, uh, you know, uh, getting children out of the uh, out of the factories and very difficult uh, working conditions. So, so, so they're, they're complex organizations. But the important thing is that as that particular episode illustrates, they play a balancing role against the power of organized business. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, I think it's a fantasy to think that business is not going to organize. Business is going to organize. You see that in political parties. You see that in employer associations. You see that in, in, in other different forms. And, and I think the genius of the market economy or liberal economy, democratic economy, whatever you want to call it, is that <clears throat> you find multipolar structure that balances the organized power of different groups. So if trade unions were extremely powerful and organized and businesses were unorganized, that would be a very unbalanced structure too. But in the U.S., I think we've gone uh, in a direction of, over time, as you've rightly pointed out, uh, trade unions became weaker and weaker and businesses became better and better organized. I don't see that at all. I, I, I Although in recent years in the tech sector, for sure, they've, they seem to have more market power, but not, I'm not even convinced of that. But I, I, you know, I, don't see the, um, I don't see the organization of unions as an important counterbalance. In fact, by unions generally raise wages by restricting access to, to those jobs. It's, it's such a mixed bag. It's, it's so not uh, clear. It's similar to the minimum wage, which you also invoke, right? The minimum wage certainly helps the workers who benefit from it, who keep their yes. jobs. We worry, I think, correctly about the well, ones. Well, actually, the minimum wage, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of the minimum wage than the unions. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about that and because, uh, and in fact, some of the efficiency-inducing effects of 
unions work very similar to the minimum wage, but in a more complicated way and uh, and with other distortions. So that's why I like the minimum wage better as long as it's not at excessive levels. And in the U.S., clearly, it's not at excessive levels. It's actually very low. Uh, and, 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 and I'm more than more than happy to talk about that. But I want to make one other point before uh, you know, go we ahead. can go there whenever you want to go. But but before we go there, I want to make one other point. I completely agree with you. Creative destruction is key. You know, uh, I've always been a big admirer of Schumpeter and, and his ideas, and we make creative destruction an important part of our overall narrative in uh, Why Nations Fail, James and I, uh, James Robinson and I. But <clears throat> creative destruction can happen in many different ways. And I guess one way of articulating what I'm saying is that there is no guarantee that left to its own devices, with no government intervention and no other political intervention, social intervention, the market economy will automatically generate the right type of creative destruction. And again, let me go back to automation versus new tasks. So it may well be that there will be a lot of creative destruction, new firms coming with more and more automated technologies and making more profitable and cheaper products, but that won't create shared prosperity unless that some of that creative destruction energy is directed towards not just automating, but creating more labor-intensive new tasks that contribute to productivity and at the same time contribute to the creation of good jobs. So we're going to find an area of, an agreement, of agreement in about five minutes. I just want to let listeners know that that's going to happen. And I'll, I'll, I'm letting you know, Daron. But I do want to, I want to, I want to disagree with, with one piece of that. Um, it's a bit of a straw man, right? To say there's no guarantee that the market without any government, of course, without any government, sure. <clears throat> without any government, maybe there'd be uh, cartels. Oh, no, by, by any government, sorry, sorry. I, I should have been clear. Without any government, I didn't mean like complete anarchy. I meant like the Night's Watchman state of Nozick or, you know, the simplest principles of economics course. We let the market rip, but don't interfere with it. I think the role of the government in regulating and redirecting uh, entrepreneurship and innovative activity. So, yes, it's actually a by, I mean, a relatively present government as being important. So, so then I would respond as follows, to, and soon we'll get to the agreement. But here's the question then. There's no guarantee the government will do that either. So why is it that you're willing to have an assumed role for government that is precise, surgical, designed by economists, et cetera, that would steer this this complicated machine that has all these multi-causal? Oh, I, would, I wouldn't trust the economists further than I could throw them. No, I'm <laughs> trusting the democratic process. Whoa, really? The yeah. democratic yeah, process? I'm a, I'm, oh, yeah, of course. Whoa. Of course, right, right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big optimist about democracy. <laughs> I think the problem we have is we don't have enough of it. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> no, I think part of this problem now, we're going to the next layer. We haven't reached our yeah. point of agreement, yeah, but part of it is, is because our democracy is broken. I think all of these issues are related to the fact that the democratic monitoring mechanisms on the government have weakened. And For of example. course, there isn't, uh, and uh, I mean, just, just to finish this thought and then I'll come to that. And of course, there isn't, it's, it's, it's a fantasy to think that the government or its technocrats could perfectly design anything or, you know, can find just the right balance. But the argument is that government regulation, often driven by a complex of vote-getting incentives, but also well-meaning bureaucratic efficiency-related incentives, puts constraints and creates guardrails, safety rails that, 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 that helps the process. And I think the best example of that, actually, is, uh, is the Nordic model. So there are lots of things wrong with the Nordic model. Anybody who goes and studies it will see there are lots of things that didn't work and there were inefficiencies. But it's also remarkable how well many aspects of the system worked. And 
And the whole thing was undergirded by democratic politics. It was a democratic government introducing it, and it, it was introducing it as a vote-getting strategy because people were really depressed about you know the Great Depression and, and things not working and looking for for something new. It was the Swedish Workers' Party uh, in uh, after 1932, and it did so uh, – you know, not as an imposition on businesses, but trying to create this sort of balance of power that I was mentioning, and that was the essence of the corporatist model, and uh, and not through some sort of very heavy taxation, we're going to redistribute everything from businesses, but we're going to create incentives for businesses to do uh, to 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 do the kind of investment and innovation that would create jobs and high wage growth. And that sort of worked remarkably well for, you know, essentially about five decades in, in Sweden and then, you know, subsequently in Norway and Denmark and uh, and later on in Finland and Germany. So, so it's that sort of uh, democratically girded government as sort of one of the uh, multi- multitude of parties that are part of the bargain that make sure the system has some stability. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't find that compelling. I I think the I mean the Swedish I, I find part of it compelling. I'll t- you know let's make it clear. The Swedish story I think is quite complicated. My understanding is is that there's been quite a few changes in of through, course. through the democratic process of that role of government. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. It was very uh interventionist in initially fact- Less so later, more more capitalist well, you now. Know, I think, you know, I think uh, those interventions are exactly the essence of the democratic process. So, so I, agree with uh, you. I agree with you. That's a great point. So here's so the let's challenge. Go, let's get into the details. Go ahead. Want. I mean, the details are are that you know. Uh, the Workers' Party comes to power in, 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 in coalition with the Agrarian Party. That's why they call it the cow trade, the green, green, red-green uh, sort of uh, coalition. And their, their first priority is to sort of increase wages and, and create labor demand. And the way that they, they, they do that is actually by bringing businesses into the, into the coalition. So – so they they say, well, let's form a sort of a coalition between the government, so run by the social democrats, uh, workers, trade unions that are very important and powerful, the agrarian interests, and the and the corporate interests, and 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 at the heart of it is uh, we're going to have relatively high wages, but those high wages are not going to become excessively taxing on the investment. And the way that they achieve that is by setting these industry-level wage bargains. And one of the geniuses of this industry-level wage bargains is that if, if, if your wages are set at the industry level, and if you invest more and you become very productive, you introduce new technologies, you're not, you're not paying higher wages. So you are at the margin, the residual claimant. And that's what really drew the businesses into the, model, into the system, and especially the productive businesses really thrive. The export-led businesses really thrived under this system because you know the, 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 what happens in the U.S. with or without unions in the UK with the with their multiple of unions is that if you invest and if you increase your productivity you start paying higher wages not so much in Sweden but then exactly like what you said you know the system is not perfect it's a it's it's a complex system so uh, after about 30 years trade unions started pushing for uh, these wage funds saying well it's not fair that some of these companies are making a lot of money so we should get those that money away from them and that would have completely uh, been a repudiation of the system because the what made the system work as a market mechanism was this incentives for firms to introduce new investments and new technologies. And they do that. They convince the social democratic government. But then the voters see this and, and they, they hand a huge defeat to the uh, social democratic government and they, they claw that back. So, so this, is the, this is the place in which you see the democratic process when it's open, transparent and open to political competition. You know, it's got the ability to actually self-correct these types of excesses, whether they come from businesses or become, they come from workers. And it seems to me that that, that system is, is pretty well, has a much better self-correcting aspect to it which is, I think, where we agree on this. I, I think the challenge is whether the United States is anything remotely like the Nordic countries in its political process or whether it ever could of be. Of course, of course. We're small. not at the moment. They're small. We're, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
very heterogeneous. Very, we were very yeah. So very big. Ours yeah, doesn't sure, seem to be so responsive as and, and effective as as theirs. Are just like our schools aren't as good as theirs. There's a lot of things that are different. Well, our schools I, used to be better. Our yes. schools used to be much better yeah. than theirs. I, well, so we were leader in schools. And incidentally, it's a little uh, little anecdote. You know, what FDR originally tried to do was very similar to what the Workers' Party did in, uh, in, uh, in, in Sweden. So FDR's industrial and agrarian policies were very similar, but they got blocked. And whether they would have worked in the U.S., that's, a, that's an open question. But, but the solutions, again, through a political mechanism that a democratic government in the U.S. Uh, in, the, in the early 1930s came up with was actually not that different from the Swedish experience. My but, only, my only point th- is that I just don't think the American political system has the nimble responsiveness of those Nordic systems, either because theirs are dramatically smaller or their society is more homogeneous. It'll be an interesting test as they have become yeah, less homogeneous I, I to see that. how they sustain that. Yeah, I don't. Dis- I don't disagree. I don't disagree that they 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 face uh, uh, <clears throat> less extreme political challenges. But you know, the American political system. I think on this one, you have to agree with me. I don't think we've found the point of happy agreement yet. It's coming. But it's coming. you cannot disagree <laughs> with me that the American system has become much more dysfunctional. Yeah, I don't think we understand why, but I think it's. I, I think part of it is uh, the standard answer is that it's you know the role of money. My my view is is that we have uh, changed, just as we have changed the norms of what's acceptable at the corporate level, which I which you talk about, and I I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. Um, I, I see that in the say in the pharmaceutical industry where pricing, I think, would have been unacceptable. 25, 50, 60 years ago is now considered like, well, why not? You know, it's okay. Let's raise it 20%. We don't have an excuse, but it doesn't matter. We can. And I think similarly, there are some norms in in, in how politicians behave, which have changed. Um, Absolutely. 100%. I completely agree. Uh, and, 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 but there are multi, multiple aspects of this. You know, the data, I think, Again, multiple interpretations are possible, but the data are striking. So the uh, the sort of the type of analysis that Nolan McCarthy, Poole, and Rosenthal do, which is to look at polarization in uh, in the in the legislature, it's striking. So if you look at the voting patterns of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate or the House uh, in the fifties and sixties, you know, many Democrats voted like Republicans on many bills and many uh, Republicans voted like Democrats on many bills. Today, there is no overlap. You don't even, even, even the most moderate Republican votes way more right wing than the most moderate Democrat. And, and I think this cannot be completely unrelated to money in politics because one of the things that, that happens, and we saw that uh, during the uh, Obamacare, if a Republican were to go and join the Democrats, and I think this was really tempting for some of the moderate uh, Republican senators like Olympia Snow, they would immediately face an extremely well-funded, thanks to Koch brothers or you know other energy sector and other uh, sort of stalwart supporters of extreme right-wing causes, they would force an extremely well-funded challenge in the primaries. And, and many of them that weren't actually so moderate, like Cantor or Paul Ryan, have lost because of that sort of, or came close to losing because of those that sort of challenges. So I think that is one part of the equation. But you're absolutely right. In the past, even if money spoke so loudly, norms would have also gotten in the way. And and I think uh, organizations, the organization of the Republican Party, you know, uh, the Republican Party and the Democrats also, uh, to a great extent, have become much better at con- correct controlling dissent within themselves, which also forces more group voting. And, and, and that is an institutional element adding to the role of money and norms. The only thing I would say to that... Um Besides the fact that I would just defend the Cokes as being, they're not right wing on ma- on many issues. They are not right wing. I just think it's important to say that they get vilified as if they're 
they're responsible for everything negative about our um, society, which I think is. Oh well, no, I used I used to I used to have much more uh, sympathy for them uh, in the past when they, <clears throat> you know, supported you know libertarian causes like the They're still pro-immigration, uh, right? Oh well, they don't speak much about it because they don't want to uh, anger uh, Trump. So I don't know. So well, I, I, let's put that to the side. I think I think where we agree, and it's a troubling reality is that the two-party political system is not very competitive. It's less competitive than it used to be. There's less – their ability to control their their members is stronger, and I think that's a bad thing. I don't think we understand exactly why that is, but it's true. Agreed. I think there's much more to be learned there, yes. Absolutely. Now let's talk about where we really agree. Okay, so where we really agree – Minimum wages. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know you really agreed with me on minimum wages, Russ. Uh, no, it's not minimum wages. <laughs> where, where we really agree is the people at the bottom. So mm-hmm. uh, when we think about creative destruction and the opportunities, it's interesting you did not mention the benefits of globalization to consumers. You mentioned producers, but I think it benefits obviously oh, consumers, yeah, as does automation, through competition, through forcing businesses to share the the cost improvements with consumers. And normally – that reduction in resources required to produce stuff creates opportunities elsewhere in the economy, draws workers into those areas. The workers who have been left behind or then become uh, opportunities for businesses to create work for them. And that isn't happening the way it used to, it seems to me. And in particular, this is where we agree, it's not happening for the lowest skilled workers. Workers who, yeah. say, graduate high school or do not even graduate high school who used to be able to have a decent standard of living in manufacturing, say, or in some parts of the service sector, and are not finding those opportunities now. So the question is – I would actually say for college graduates. So college graduates without advanced degrees, masters, MBAs, PhDs, specialized degrees, they're in the same boat. They're finding it harder and harder to – get those good jobs. That's what they study. Uh, if you're in a STEM field, I don't think that's true. I think even if you're, uh, you know, most business majors do well. I think if you major in the liberal arts and those ranks are diminished greatly, which is right. makes makes me that's sad because right. uh, I'm a I'm a fan of, of liberal arts. I'm a fan of the humanities. I'm a fan of English and philosophy. And we, there's a lot of debate about why they're less uh, attractive and effective. But it's certainly the case that people who major in those things struggle to find can struggle to find work, uh, including right. social sciences. I would add, not just the. What- yeah, no, I was. I'm generalizing, but again, you know, subject to the CPI issue. If you look at the real wages of college graduate men without postgraduate education, they've been fairly stagnant for the last twenty years. Yeah, of course, some of that is postgraduate, the, postgraduate wages are growing very rapidly. One of the challenges but, of but interpreting that, which is often forgotten is that the proportion of the population going into college has grown dramatically, especially in the last 20 years. So it's not the same people. It's different levels of ability. You would expect that to slow at least the rate of growth. If it's stagnant, it's, that's a little bit alarming, I agree. But let's talk about the people who, who we know are struggling, which are people who say who don't finish high school, people who have uh, an inability to be part of the so-called knowledge economy, and they end up, say, driving Uber, but maybe Uber's going to disappear soon. So, you know, that's uh, because we're not Uber, maybe, but say autonomous cars show up. I'm starting to think that they're not coming. But um, the worries that people have about low-skill workers being able to participate in the modern economy, I think, is a real concern. And a, I think more importantly— Absolutely. Agreed. And more one important, more point of agreement. I, mean, I got one more for you, too. Even though the focus is on the material side of, of the standard of living, I think that's— Echoing what we talked about earlier, I think the dignity part is more important, if not equal, if not more important, in in that there are too many people in America today who don't feel like they matter and who yeah. are struggling to feel uh, self-respect. And um, those are the folks that I'm most worried about. So, what can we do for them? Uh, you have some suggestions in your in your essay. Uh, we're not going to agree on those probably, but but lay them out. Yeah. No, one one hundred percent, and and. And and I think, actually, it it was a uh, uh, so let me reiterate the agreement. I think people <clears throat> call it middle class or lower middle class falling behind is a real problem, but also the fact that they feel 
neglected and ignored is even worse and i think that's one of the failures of the so the intellectual elites including you know uh the the sort of the leaders of the democrat democratic party that you know they did not understand all of that resentment in the heartland of uh, of of america and same thing in britain uh where you know people were not getting good jobs they were not getting the wage raises they were not finding the that they were sharing the gains and uh, and and many of them were actually losing their jobs because of automation and globalization and their voices were unheard and the longer they became they were they were unheard the the more resentment they started rightly to to embody so i think it is critical to to uh, to 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 deal with this problem and and my sort of uh, perspective on this is that you know of course the standard uh, levers that economists emphasize are important social safety net the better the social safety net the more uh, the more the the sort of the protection we can provide and help them get into new jobs, better education for the next generation. But I think critical also is a more concerted effort to create good jobs and good jobs, not just for tech entrepreneurs, but good jobs for the middle class, for people without college degrees, without postgraduate degrees. And to do that, I think uh, we need both institutional and broader measures. So going back to my earlier discussion, if indeed the there is no guarantee that the market economy will channel its creative destruction energies, technological dynamism into uh, technologies that will support, underpin shared prosperity, then the government does have a role in... Uh, in as as a provider of the most important provider of funding for uh, for for new innovations and technologies to to actually take that into account the example i give there is climate change look we've made such amazing uh, uh progress against climate change over the last 30 years because 30 years ago green technologies solar wind geothermal uh they were nowhere to be close to competitive with fossil fuel energy. Today, they're pretty close to being competitive. If it wasn't for the shale gas discoveries, you know, today a green energy would be, you know, head to head with most of the coal-powered energy. So that didn't happen because we slapped big carbon taxes. I mean, carbon taxes play an important role, and we should have them. But it happened because the government actually supported green technology. In other words, the government played a role in the direction of technological change. It's the same when it comes to new technologies. And, uh, and, and, and one of the things that I think the government has to take into account is, are we investing enough in the blue sky technologies that are going to be the job generators of tomorrow? Are we putting too much emphasis on automation, automation, automation at the expense of creating new jobs, new tasks, new labor complementary technologies. I think those are important questions we have to ask. And and if you look at the track record of the government, it's far from perfect, but it also has many successes of, you know, being at the early stages of completely transformative technologies. I would also add to that list other institutional factors, minimum wages, you know, this is uh, the conceptual point that I wanted to make, and let me make it. Yeah. Uh, this goes back to research I did in uh, 2000s, uh, late 1990s. So if you look at the economy where labor markets are not competitive, in particular, for instance, you have search and matching or some sort of wage bargaining, you can easily show it's a first order prediction that the market economy will have an <clears throat> incentive to create too few good jobs and too many bad jobs where good jobs and bad jobs are distinguished by how much upfront investment you make and it's for a very simple reason if i make an upfront investment i produce more and i pay higher wages but that high those higher wages also mean that i'm not the full residual claimant so I underinvest and I tend to opt for lower wage jobs. 
And you can show that if that's the way the economy looks like, and there is some evidence suggesting that's not a very bad approximation to many sectors, then minimum wages that put a floor on how low wages can get is part of the optimal policy. And that's the sense in which I think minimum wages should be justified not on sort of monopsony, but on this good jobs, wage, bad jobs grounds. And that sort of brings it back to really the priorities, good jobs. And that's why we need the institutional foundations such as minimum wages and to some degree unemployment benefits and unions to make sure that there isn't an excessive, too excessive incentive for bad jobs at the expense of good jobs. So I don't agree with that, but that's neither here nor there. <clears throat> I, I don't oh, I thought you were going to agree with that one hundred percent. No, I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not, but I'm not going to, but I'm not going to push on it because I, I think it's. Uh, we'll put a link up to the paper. You'll send me a link to it, and um, and we'll let readers think about whether that's uh, convincing on their own. But I, I want to try a different approach. Please, uh, I'm going to find a different level area of agreement, regardless of of whether these structural issues in the in the labor market are important or not and I may underestimate them, and you may overestimate them, it would certainly help, regardless of what your view on that is, it would certainly help if workers had more skill. And I Absolutely. find it remarkable and tragic that we don't spend, we meaning our profession, don't spend more time on how to make our education system better. We have very uh, disturbing evidence on the relationship between spending and outcomes. We can debate, people debate it all the time, but the default position that people have to, to, to explain is that there doesn't seem to be much of a relationship between per student spending and various measures of outcomes. You could argue that outcomes aren't well measured, that they're flawed, but, but the idea of, quote, spending more money has not proven to be very helpful. Well, let me, let me not get into that because that's a complex topic, but let me uh, agree with you on the education point, I think uh, I 100% agree education is key and we are doing a lousy job of asking what type of education. You know, it's actually really ironic that, you know, <clears throat> we're, we're witnessing in economics a complete resurgence of education research. There's so many papers written on education because data are available, you know, on school assignment, on various aspects of charter what schools. goes on classrooms, charter schools, etc., etc. But none of that, in my opinion, is asking the important questions. Is how should we design the curriculum? What are Agreed. the skills that the students need? And what are the skills that students from different backgrounds need? I mean, go and visit... A uh, elite school, especially where you know children have come from upper middle class background, and one where uh, you know they come from lower middle class background, you'll see they're just completely different environments, and those students need very different sorts of instruction. The type of instruction they need is different. The skills that they need to get, they are not getting them because our curricula are completely outdated. Uh, our students don't have the, our teachers don't have necessarily the right skills. I think those are really critical issues that we're not dealing with. But I would also add to that training. You know, one of the issue, one of the things, again, going back to the work that I did in the 1990s, the sort of uh, the same things that create this imbalance between good jobs and bad jobs also creates too little training, too little investment in the skills of the workers by their employers. And again, some of those arrangements, such as unions and minimum wages, have the added benefit that they tend to trigger if embedded in the right institutional setup, they tend to trigger more training investments. Yeah, I think the um, one way to summarize our expanding sphere of agreement, Duran, is that the current emphasis on K through 12 as the entry port into a college experience is a mistake. <laughs> uh, not everyone can go to college. Not everyone should go to college. And we need an, some alternative ways to enrich the uh, skill set of folks who aren't going. Absolutely, 100%. But it's a very difficult question because <clears throat> one alternative is the German system. And I, 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 I've studied the German system a little bit and I have respect for it. But it is too scripted and it does not give second chances, which I think are very important given the fabric of U.S. society. So the challenge for us is how do you design a system that 
really doesn't treat every course as if it's preparing you for you know a junior calculus in uh, in one of the state universities while at the same time gives second chances and ability for social mobility to people who come from all kinds of different walks of life so i think that's the american challenge yeah i agree with you and i think i just wish we would um spend a lot more time on it a lot more research it just seems to me it's a it's a it's the central problem that we could make Again, obviously, we, you and I would agree on this. If we could improve that, the, there'd be more good jobs, no matter what the state of the uh, labor market, creative destruction, globalization, et cetera, is. Yeah. Let me, let me uh, I'm sure we're running out of time, but let me end with one observation. There are many things that are different, but the evidence is that when U.S. manufacturing firms adopt robots, they cut employment, especially they cut employment of their production workers. When German companies do so, they cut them less. They find other ways of using the skills of their line workers. And I think that is not unrelated to the fact that those are trained workers that have more embedded human capital in them. They have expertise and the employers don't want to lose them. Excellent point. My guest today has been Duran Asimoglu. Duran, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure, Ross. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.